0: He's responsible for three of the four top-grossing films of all time. Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and should Return of the Jedi's current success hold on, George Lucas' latest movie will knock E.T. off its number one perch. Not a bad record for a filmmaker yet to turn 40. George Lucas began making movies at the University of Southern California. A student film called THX 1138 became a feature for Warner Brothers, but his breakthrough film was American Graffiti, which cost less than a million and grossed more than 40 million dollars. Graffiti and later Star Wars enabled Lucas to turn his back on Hollywood.
1: He felt that the only way he could really set up what he considers to be an alternative to Hollywood was to have a miniature version of many of the reasons he needed Hollywood that was essential to him to guarantee the independence he felt
0: he needed. Independence has its price. Lucas financed Empire Strikes Back, and when the film went over budget, he was broke. He has told
1: me that he will not do Star Wars films until he can bring that cost significantly down. In fact, he even joked with me he fantasizes selling the remaining six films. And
2: I said, how could you bear to see what somebody would do to them? He said, it would make my work look better.
3: Star start with fans, move milkers everywhere. Welcome to episode number 278 of Blast Points. This is Jason and this is Gabe. This week we are talking about the 1971... I don't even want to call it a documentary. It's like just a filmed conversation with George Lucas and this guy Gene Youngblood that was filmed for... Los Angeles Public Television Channel, KCET. It's called George Lucas, Maker of Films. And at the time, George Lucas was really only the maker of one actual film, THX 1138, other than his student films. This special, this little short, this little hour-long conversation has been on our radar for a while now. Like, I feel like it was kind of, what, maybe about five, six years ago, kind of rediscovered. And I think that's, like, when, when I first saw it. And it it's amazing, as we're going to get into, for several reasons. It's 71. Lucas, like we said, he's only made thx eight. He's very far from being the household name he is today. But... It's absolutely essential, I would say, for fans of Star Wars, for fans of George Lucas, and all the things that kind of went into the creation of Star Wars. It's all there in this chat with Gene Youngblood. It's young Lucas. It's Lucas at his most, (laughs) one of his most angry and rebellious, but he's also very chill. I don't know, Gabe, how would you describe this george lucas maker of films yeah because it is it is interesting that he is it's simultaneously completely chill like you said but when he talks yeah he's angry and he's angry at hollywood and he has very specific complaints and although he's only worked in the hollywood system for one film and a little bit before that it's So crazy to watch now because you see all the stuff that bugged him at 27 years old in 1971 are all the things that really drove him to make the movies he made and push the technology the way he did. And, you know, looking at George Lucas today, you can see a pretty clear progression from this kind of angry kid in 1971 to ultimately, you know, the billionaire philanthropist, crazy old man that we all love of old man, George Lucas, the old wizard <laughs> yeah, yeah, showing up in shorts, going to museum exhibits, just hanging out, being loose. And, and yeah. And that's the thing. Speaking of Lucas's look too, I mean, this is like Lucas at his most dashing. This is, like blue jean wearing, cool jacket. He's got like a black T-shirt. His hair is absolutely impossible. It has no beginning or end. His, his glasses are thick and black. And it's just, man, he's, he's this is heartbreaker, Lucas. Well, and to go along with this, if you happen to have the, uh, the Sounds of Star Wars book, there's a great picture of 1971 George Lucas without the glasses, like with a camera over his shoulder. And he looks like he's airbrushed because he's glowing. And that's the same. 1971 is when, uh, I don't know, maybe he peaked as far as the uh, sexy Lucas. I don't know. The summer of 1971, which is when this interview took place, THX 1138 had come out in March of 71. The beginning of summer 71, late spring, early summer, he finds out that, THX-138 is going to be part of the Cannes Film Festival. Him and Marsha go to Cannes Film Festival. Before they go, they stop in New York to visit their friend Francis Coppola, who's filming The Godfather. While in New York, while visiting and staying with Coppola, Lucas tries to buy the rights to Flash Gordon and is turned down. So already... He's thinking about this kind of space movie based on the serials he watched as a kid. It's already part of his head. And while filming THX-138, and this is all thanks to the the making of Star Wars book by the late, great Jonathan Rensler, which is heartbreaking to say – While filming THX 138, Coppola presents a challenge to Lucas to whatever movie he makes next, it's got to be a happy movie. (laughs) So Lucas decides whatever he's going to do next, he's going to base it on his childhood and Modesto and hot rods and cars and cruising and all the music he loved, which eventually became American Graffiti, which also probably when this conversation with Gene Youngblood and this George Lucas maker of films was was made. Just underneath the Hollywood Hills and the Hollywood sign in L.A., he was writing American graffiti with help from the hikes. And also around this time, in this, in late summer 71, he signs a two-picture deal with United Artists, where eventually they thought they were going to make graffiti. That in, did not end up happening. But in August of 1971, probably maybe right around the time when this is this maker films is filmed or released or whatever united artists registers with the mpaa the title for an upcoming film the star wars so the very first steps to this space fantasy idea he has this serial this callback to the the things he loved as a kid very much like graffiti was all beginning right around this time and it's so fascinating To listen to him talk in Maker of Films and think about the secret he has in his head that only maybe he and Marsha and maybe his weird buddy Steve Spielberg, who got turned on by the 4EB short, maybe just a handful of people know about his ideas for his next movies he has. It's an amazing portrait of a person whose life is about to change. In this George Lucas maker of films. I think we talked about it in the the New Hope commentary commentary episode we did a little bit while back. There aren't many people out there today who have had one kind of manifesto to their lives and have stuck to it through thick and thin <laughs> like George Lucas has. Right. A lot of people can say a lot of things and talk the talk, but not everyone can follow through and back it up the way George Lucas did with the rest of his career. And yeah, it's amazing that there's this little snapshot of him at this time. And it's, it's not even, you know, as much a formal interview too, is it, it, it's not like, it's like you said earlier, it's really just kind of this conversation between these two people who neither of them are really, that big of a deal at the time. And they're just talking about philosophies of filmmaking and, you know, these two guys have a lot in common and a lot of differences. And it's, yeah, it's just this incredible chat into where was George Lucas's head in 1971. And we got to give a shout out to, to the other part of the conversation, uh, Gene Youngblood. Sadly, he passed away just a couple months ago, on April 6th, 2021. And he was a theorist of media arts and politics, a scholar in history and alternative cinema. He was a film critic for the LA Herald Examiner in the late 60s. He was a columnist for the Los Angeles Free Press, the first and largest underground newspaper of the era of the late 60s. And his best-known book, Expanded Cinema, was the first book to ever consider video as an art form. And he is still credited to this day as the first person to help legitimize the art form of video and computer and media arts and kind of pushing the boundaries of what could be considered visual art. And he lectured all throughout the 70s, 80s. Just a really fascinating person. Yeah, I have to admit the first time I watched this video years ago, I didn't really realize who Gene Youngblood was. And it did kind of almost seem like, why aren't you letting George Lucas talk? But kind of when you put it in context, it is almost these two were, if not kind of equals in their level of success, potentially in some ways, you know, in Los Angeles, maybe Gene Youngblood was kind of a a bigger deal than George Lucas at that time. Well, and both were were future thinkers. Both were forward thinkers, thinking of what's next. And, you know, and shout out to Gene Youngblood for even getting Lucas on the show. Because like we said, I mean, Lucas won a bunch of awards for THX 1384 EB, Electric Labyrinth, his student film. But I think we talked about this when we did our THX episode a while back. We love THX. A lot of people have seen THX now and a lot of people are familiar with THX, but when THX 138 came out in theaters in 1971, how many people really saw it and what was that release even like? There's not a lot out there about that. Like there's no people like I remember seeing THX 138 in the movie theater, you know, like you don't hear about that ever. But I think Gene Youngblood saw it in the theater and uh yeah, he he was a George Lucas fan. You know before anybody else was and was smart enough to hey let's talk to this guy and let's film it and we are so lucky all these years later that they did yeah because this video is like we said it is a portrait of the artist as a young man who was george lucas in 1971 sure he looked cool <laughs> it's about to be the, the coolest he's ever looked but what was he thinking about what was going on in his head and yeah, this video is the the closest we get to it.
1: I like the idea of a futuristic, uh, sort of brave new world. And I wanted to do something extremely visual. You know, they had no dialogue and no character and that sort of thing, and they wanted to cross between a theatrical and a non theatrical kind of experience.
0: It was such a huge vision in, 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 in so very few minutes. It was just, it, had, it just spoke volumes about the future and, and my favorite subject, science fiction.
2: It's all kinetics, it's all imagery, it's all,
0: you know, it's all working on that level. I was impressed. Then I went to USC at, a, uh, at their annual student awards. And I began to realize your know, first prize was George Lucas, THX 1138 eb And uh, special prize, George Lucas, you know, and he was sort of like the whiz kid of USC.
1: Francis said that he would help me get THX made into a feature film.
3: So the documentary is kind of formatted into these, these four parts of conversations between Lucas and Youngblood. Like with in between those, like either playing some of his shorts or clips from THX 138, the conversation is kind of divided into four parts. So we're going to dissect the conversation in these four parts. So it kind of starts out with a little Lucas history backstory. He goes into how he wanted to be in the film business and just his frustration with feeling like he was shut out and that there weren't opportunities to kind of break into Hollywood. And they go back to questions of, as he was growing up, you know, was he into movies? Was he into TV? And that Lucas talks a bit about how really until, College in film school that he didn't really get the the love of film that he now has, and that he was kind of what does he say he wasn't necessarily interested in movies, but the idea of images that move or or film is just the movement in film is what initially excited him, not necessarily telling I was stories.
1: As cars at the races uh, when I came down here. Uh Los Angeles to know anything about film didn't you know anybody in the film business and I was completely lost you know did you want in and, and I wanted in you know just like everybody else I wanted to get in and I had applied to SC but I hadn't been accepted and I'd applied to UCLA and I hadn't been accepted and uh, uh so I was you know wanted to learn about the film business
2: and didn't you hadn't you been exposed to all the talk all the all the negative talk about Hollywood and how one shouldn't Get into that horrible business and all Not that. Really? No?
1: Yeah. In a small town. You know. I mean, there was no intellectualizing of it. It was just uh-huh. movies. You know, and it wasn't movies as much as it was film that moved. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was um, uh, when I got into it, I was I was more fascinated in the just the medium, you know, at the the fact that it moved. You know, that real <laughs> childish intrigue of, gosh, look at the thing, it moves, and you know, and I. You know it came a it became a kind of obsession and a kind of uh-huh. real desire to watch things move and photograph and what things movies. i mean
2: did did you have like I it just, didn't matter
1: it started uh um,
2: i mean didn't you have dreams that you wanted to to make real and that's why you wanted to make movies you know that, uh, uh, one gets the image of a filmmaker well, it, I
3: my f- the part in this that really raised my eyebrows was when he's kind of s- scoffing at the idea of him being a filmmaker and he relates it more to being a toy maker and that he's interested in the mechanics of it. And it's just like hearing him say that in 1971, it's pretty wild.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know. I got into it. I got into an argument once at a, at a film conference with, the, with George Cooper, who really doesn't like the, the word filmmaker. I mean, he likens it to toy maker. And I think that's a real nice thing. I like being thought of as a toy maker that makes films. And that's how I got into it is I was fascinated Mm. with the mechanics of it. I mean, you know, coming out of cars and what have you. I was fascinated with the fact that you could take real life and put it onto an image and make it move and you could manipulate it. Real life play with it. Real life. Whatever you were to photograph.
3: (laughs) Yeah, because it's kind of like even early on, you know, him at least when he's talking about his work or even in his head, thinking it more as like a craftsman or, you know, he's not ashamed of thinking of films as something that you build and not necessarily this, this purely esoteric, artistic, nebulous thing. Like, yeah, he's fine being a toy maker. And that's so crazy on, you know, just the way we now know, That he made the movies he made, but then also, yeah, just the fact that so much of (laughs) Star Wars is toys and that he's always been one for merchandising, which, you know, I don't think that's what he meant when he said he likes being a toy maker. But it makes sense that with his filmmaking and with the things in marketing the film that he does like being a toy maker. Well, it's it's something that comes up kind of throughout this conversation almost like this cold kind of detachment he has from the films he makes and again it kind of goes back to the the new hope commentary commentary where it's like the way he sometimes talks about his films like you're not you don't often get george lucas crying about the unmasking of darth vader and the the message of father and sons and that Star Wars is all about family and love. I mean, that kind of came later in his career. And you, you get it every once in a while in, an, like in, in a candid interview. But it's a rare thing. Like, more often, I feel like he talks about what he makes in the more technical aspect. It's almost like that's where he's happier discussing things. And yeah, if you think of, like, well, I, I made this documentary or this... Almost tone poem of random images, or the THX one hundred three eight four EB short. It was a technical exercise. I'm I'm interested in the mechanics of it. I, uh, you know, I'm a toy maker. I'm a craftsman. I'm not making soul searching films. That's an interesting thing over the course of this conversation with them, and I think we'll you know get into more of it as it goes along. But it does start here with. Like we were saying early on, Lucas saying he wasn't interested in stories and he was just interested in how the moving images looked in the relationship between different moving images. And as we see some of his early short films, they're kind of very abstract and they're kind of not necessarily narrative and telling a story. They're just you get feelings based on the relationship between the images and the sounds. And that eventually story and wanting to tell something creeps into the into his filmmaking. But he never really talks about that as much as kind of yeah, reverting to his initial interest in the mechanics of it, even to this day, in some respects, because it's like that's I've seen some comments on that with the even the Tashin book, the, the prequels one of. As much new information as there is in that book from interviews, a lot of it is more process of making them. And there's not as much, this is what I was feeling. This is what it means. It's not that his movies don't have that. It's just for whatever reason. yeah. When he talks about this stuff, even all the way back here in 71, it's kind of coming from this technician point of view. It's wild because like, after this conversation, they play his short film, 618-67, which if you just watched this short film, you would have no idea that the purpose of this short was Lucas was hired to be on the set of this Western, McKenna's Gold, by this producer, Carl Foreman. And Carl Foreman hired four film school graduates, two from USC and two from UCLA to come on location and make short films about the making of this Hollywood Western. And some people made a, a documentary on the director. One guy made a film on like horse wranglers and Lucas was hired just to make a general making of film. And what, lucas may titled 61867 (laughs) is this like just this tone poem of images of like prairie dogs and bushes blowing in the wind has absolutely nothing to do with the production of this film mckenna's gold and producer foreman reportedly hated lucas short film but was forced to say he liked it on a PBS documentary about the project. And, of course, Lucas's film went on to win several awards. It's a cool short, and, and I have to say, I think this... George Lucas, Maker of Films, was the first time I saw this short. It is cool going back to watch because as much as it is kind of just this abstract thing, you can see the the beginnings of THX and even the Star Wars kind of mixing of images and audio, though, because the only thing in it that actually does seem like it's actually a documentary on the film is in the middle. There's some footage shot from really far away of... (laughs) <laughs> of the crew and stuff, you know, filming But you can just hear the audio of the filming really loud So it's like you're still kind of looking at nature But you hear these kind of, you know, people talking And and, and machinery going on from them filming and it, and it does, you know, start to have that kind of THX and, and ultimately Star Wars mixing of kind of weird sounds Going with the visuals So it's, it's like you can see the beginnings there.
0: All right, quiet, we're rolling, right? Roll. Yeah. Yeah. When you're ready, when
2: you're ready, buddy. I just didn't want to keep holding. Okay. okay,
1: Okay. we're rolling. Here we go. Roll. 43, take one. 44, take okay. one. We're
2: rolling, please. Roll. Action. Hold it. You know... It have been trailing that old man for two weeks now.
3: Well, that kind of leads us into part two of their conversation where it was so hard for him to get on a film set and he studies at USC and he's 18 years old and he kind of stumbles into going to school and all this stuff, right? Yeah, it sounds like Lucas ultimately decided to go to film school because his his attempts to kind of break into the industry In other ways weren't working so he goes to film school and i think youngblood asks him if he has any if he felt you know had some more experience than the average student because of his relationship with haskell wexler and lucas is not really (laughs)
2: so by the time you were at sc you did have some um more more than the general knowledge of what goes on in the industry then No,
1: no 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 i didn't really get on a film set I, see, I, see. I mean, we kept trying. That's the only thing I really found out was the door was completely closed, and there was a solid brick wall, at least twelve feet high, around the whole thing. <laughs> the one thing is, SC. The great thing that a film school did was that it exposed me to a lot of film, and I was just, you know, enthralled. I mean, I, all these. Oh, you started seeing a lot of. Then, movies. <laughs> I mean, you go to movies all day long. That's all you ever do there, uh-huh. and it was really an experience. You know, that's when I really got excited about film, and I just kind of went crazy. Because when I went in, I kind of ambled in, and I kind of, yeah. well, let's look and see what's behind this door. You know, because I didn't know what I was. You know, I was like any other, you know, kid, eighteen years old. I didn't know what in the world I was going to do with my life and where I was going, and and uh, you know, uh, and I just stumbled into this film school, and then there I was, and it was like the most incredible thing I'd ever witnessed in my life. Uh-huh. Uh
3: huh. I really think the film has a. Language. And then young blood starts talking about, I believe it's the the TXX short of just how the images, kind of convey a feeling and that it looks like he's choosing the images based on the feelings they convey more so than necessarily just telling a story and lucas kind of goes into how he's been trying to keep that style of you know putting something in the film because he likes the feeling it gives and getting pushback from the executives at the studios with thx the the actual film version of him wanting to put those kind of things in and them not understanding that it it works because it feels right
2: and this this little short had a kind of a dynamic quality uh, uh that was really appealing you know the way it begins with this uh uh, droning music, uh, was it the Yardbirds music, or some, yeah. some organ type of, of a drone, a uh-huh. yeah. and these, these colored lights going over the black, uh, black frame and, and so forth, uh, you know, you would look at that and get an immediate feeling, some kind yeah. of an impact. But you, if you really analyze what it was, you, you don't know. It, right. like, it
1: was that, and I've been trying to carry that through. It was a feeling, and that's when I did it. Yeah. I felt that. And it was a strange thing, because I felt that, that was right. And I put that that way, and I felt it when I ran it. Mm-hmm. I felt it, and I said, yeah, that works. And uh, when you get into a bigger film, it becomes an extremely difficult thing to do. When you're in a little controlled situation, you can put something in that you feel. Right. And it's very easy to do, uh, because the the what you're dealing with is fluid enough to where there's no set rigid things that you have to meet. And you can just feels yeah. good you can just put it there and that's the only reason for it being there
2: did you find that it was not possible to work that way when you got into uh, on a gig? feature
1: if you try to explain that to a uh, studio executive that it feels right they go crazy uh-huh and they say and because they don't feel it because i don't think they feel anything
3: when he's talking about that like with the short making decisions based on feeling versus story i couldn't help thinking like qui-gon <laughs> Right. Act on instinct. Trust your feelings. You know, they're just the basics of the the force. Yeah, the force is all about making movies. (laughs) It's been right in front of us this whole time. That's what it's really about. This is how you make movies. The Fabuloso stamp and everything. All the stories we always hear from the art department of them putting up just tons and tons of art and... We, what's going to catch his feeling and f- this gets a fabuloso and it's it's true though yeah because the whole idea i mean we we hear um doug chang's always talking about it about how you need to be able to tell what this is and you can des- he decides if he likes it or not in just a few seconds like it's a feeling yeah <laughs> and and the the, the <laughs> same thing of the art driving the story and what is this art it's something that Causes a feeling, causes a reaction You know, we talk about this stuff so much <laughs> As so many Star Wars fans do And think about it so much That when you hear this young, angry, blue-jean George Lucas Talking about this stuff, you're like Oh, yeah, that's that's what we t- think about And talk about every single week, that every day And I love to, when he's talking about Then the finished film Of THX 1138 And again we're just coming Just a few months After it came out And he's talking about yeah how the studio had no faith in it And it Like his student films Are more technically oriented
1: And and the first text was really a visual exercise And uh, uh, It was was done as a lighting test And I was Uh teaching a class over at SC And it uh, uh, Now just now I'm beginning To get into saying things uh,
2: you know, same. Way. I was. Well, that was that was what about a fifteen-minute student film made in when nineteen sixty-eight or sixty-seven or eight? Yeah, sixty-eight. Mm-hmm. I think. It was finished I remember at the time I, I was uh, writing some film criticism, and and everyone, including me, everyone was impressed with the technical quality of the film. It, it was one of the few films that one had seen at that time in which there was a substantial portion shot off of a television uh, mm. tube and so forth, and it did have this rather. Uh, kinky futuristic quality about it, and this this was very impressive. And also, um, I ha- having just seen it this morning, um, uh, I realized that, that also that film was like
1: it's a chase sequence. It's a very simple idea, yeah. and it's yeah. and it was done that way because it was a lighting test. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I couldn't shoot a film. You know, I had to shoot something very simplistic that I could put together uh-huh. and would be interesting. You
2: know? I think that you know, THX uh, has won. A lot of awards, i'm I'm talking about the early uh, yeah. the uh, early film, which. I understand it's be, uh, been retitled now to Electronic Labyrinth or something. The uh, yeah.
1: school did that for, uh, for copyright uh-huh. reasons.
2: And... Uh, but it's won a st- uh, uh, national student film competition yeah. what once or twice, huh? Or, uh, or just, ten, once.
1: just once. It, uh, it won there. It won Oberhausen uh-huh. in uh, uh-huh. Edinburgh and a lot of places.
2: Uh-huh. So evidently, it, uh, uh, most people think that it has more value than just the lighting test. <laughs> well, yeah, me included. I mean, it was you know, like
3: in the, the Tashin, the archives book. It's almost like talking about the technical stuff is his safe thing. But we all know that the Star Wars movies and THX 1 and three they're more than technical achievements or technical experiments. He might have made Young Indy to push what could be done for digital cinema if we're eventually thinking about the prequels. But that's not the whole point of the Young Indiana Jones series. But that's really that mindset is kind of the backbone of what made ILM and Lucasfilm what they are of the idea of it's almost like finding a story. So you have an excuse to push the technology or using the technology to do a story you couldn't do before that there, you know, he might focus on the technical when he's talking, but he knows they go hand in hand and it's kind of why do one without the other. And if you're going to do another Star Wars movie, let's do a lighting test. You know, it's like, (laughs) why just make a movie when you can make it an experiment is almost kind of where it sounds like he's coming from. It's like, I need to do this lighting test. And along the way, I'm going to make a story out of it, whether it's conscious or unconscious. But it seems like, you know, he knows what he's doing. He just doesn't always talk about it. But it's so great because it's it's the spirit of Lucasfilm right there in seventy one, and there is no Lucasfilm in nineteen seventy one. Well, it has. There's one employee, and he's wearing blue jeans and dark glasses. <laughs> because then, like right after that, what they play the 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 actual THX short. I think it's in its entirety. But even in this this short film version, the four EB version, the soundscape in it created by at the time this guy Daniel Tooth and how that kind of then led to the amazing sound work in the 1971 film by Walter Murch and how what Murch did in that film led directly to what Ben Burt did in Star Wars. And as we've talked about quite a bit on this show the importance of sound design in all of Star Wars and what a major role it has, and how its roots. I don't know, you can go right back to the George Lucas student films for that.
1: that 12 12 113 and 11340 me and go 378 text 113 and demonstrated the spatial realities and coefficient of loss in succeeding two months the phenomenal growth
3: that well and it's it's crazy to see that you know the idea of okay this short film was a lighting test And it was a lighting test to, you know, shoot with just natural light in these locations, which ended up being how they shot most of THX. So it wasn't just a test in name. It was actually a test that led to something bigger and better. And in the end, kind of the way THX was made in some ways was a test for how Star Wars ends up being made. And and the original kind of look he was going for was more of what THX was with natural lighting and more, you know, using documentary cameramen and that sort of stuff and and that carrying through through all the Lucasome projects of, like you said, with young Indy being its own thing, but it's a test for something else coming along. And the special editions, hey, let's release the special editions because people love these movies, but let's add some stuff to it as a test for this next thing and that just that mindset of Yeah, it really is just the combination between doing something for technical reasons and doing things for artistic reasons at the same time. And then finally getting to do the prequels and, well, let's test a full motion capture character. What's that like? Would that work? I think we could use that again for something in the future. (laughs) It never stopped, and it started way back with THX student film. So then we move on to part three of the conversation. And this is kind of Francis Coppola kind of really enters the conversation, his relationship with Coppola, American zoetrope. I, I just always find this stuff all just completely fascinating. Well, and after reading about the zoetrope stuff in you know the various making of books, there was a lot of that in, in the Lucas biographies. It's kind of fun to just see Lucas kind of in the middle of it talking about it. Because a lot of times you kind of get the maybe it's the Coppola version where it's like hyped up of like it's the best thing ever and and it's going to be the best thing ever and you hear lucas here it's just kind of like yeah well you know we're doing this thing <laughs> i heard were, we're a little more elaborate than that the, well, the word
2: went out that zoetrope had the state-of-the-art technology and you had all these you know, fabulous uh, we, pieces of equipment
1: we got a lot of new equipment in and uh, uh we had problems getting it working and stuff a lot of experimental equipment you know mm-hmm. we were you know it's cheaper because it's experimental i mean because nobody uses it uh-huh. so uh, we were going out on a limb and a lot of equipment and stuff and literally francis had made enough money on the rain people and what have you to invest in everything that he earned in buying equipment to make american zoetrope work you really don't have to be in los angeles to make films or hollywood you can make them anywhere make them anywhere in the world uh all you have to do is have the knowledge i mean the facilities that they have here you can have anywhere you know all you need is a camera um, uh-huh. You can buy a camera so we essentially bought a camera. And moved to San Francisco and uh-huh. said, we're going to make movies up here and That's- we don't need...
3: I mean, that, but then that made me think of, you know, ILM and Lucasfilm. And it made me think of the volume, too, of literally creating a movie set out of nothing, out of technology, and being able to film the impossible anywhere. And the ultimate goal of that being making it easier for anyone to make a movie that if they can do it, then other people can do it. And it's, you know, it's not just him not having to be in Hollywood, making it so nobody has to be in Hollywood. Well, and that kind of leads into, like, a long part of the conversation, too, where it's the angry young man comes out, where he's very bitter about the studios. The dollar is more important than the idea. And you've got to remember, too, that, t h x one and three comes out, and it's this you know experimental, absolutely bizarre movie that this guy made and what was it? Warner Brothers had psychiatrists interviewing people at test screenings like asking them if they were okay after they watched this movie like I think Warner Brothers was terrified of t h x one and three yeah,
1: it, it's a fact of uh... Uh, kind of resentment i guess that everyone feels when one finds that uh somebody who has the money or has the as a result of the money has the power to make decisions that are out of their area you know but because they have the power and because they have the money uh they can make like aesthetic directorial writing decisions uh-huh. which they have really no business making uh And it's, you know, it's in this country, the dollar is above the individual. A man's brain, a man's experience, a man's talent is below the dollar. The man with yeah. the dollar is the final say. You seem to have
2: arrived at a position that's uh, perhaps opposite from the one that we started talking about this morning, was where you said that you be- became interested in film having no real con- conceptions about it, but simply wanting to make images that move right. together with sounds. And now your experience with the industry has perhaps turned you around, where you, you now have very definite conceptions, yeah. and just making images is not enough. Anymore. No, He's I'm not really wrong. Important.
3: The idea of the, the people with the money are making the decisions, they have the power. But the thing that's always so incredible with kind of the George Lucas story and seeing this is, you know, he knew that was the way things were. And to fight that, ultimately, he just got the money, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and it's what's so kind of crazy is, you know, Star Wars, when it was a success and instead of, you know, spending all his money, just being rich, he took most of the money or all the money to make the other movies to build skywalker ranch to really put himself in lucasfilm in the position of now he has the power and the money and can make decisions about his own films and i think just that whole aspect of his career is kind of incredible in a way of seeing this you know young guy who's so frustrated by the way things are and actually kind of turning the tables and it's the same thing, too, with the the money from the sale to Disney and how he gave it all to education charities. And it's kind of the Lucas thing. It's like Carl Foreman gets mad at him because he makes a weird tone poem documentary about the making of McKenna's Gold, but it ends up winning a ton of awards. And then he's got to go on PBS and say how much he loved it. People dismiss Star Wars as being this mindless children's movie, but here we are 2021 and we're on episode what is this 278 (laughs) talking about a podcast of some interview from 71 like people always dismiss what he does at first as this ridiculous thing but he's always a couple steps ahead of everyone else you know (laughs) well and yeah and there's got to be some pretty serious kind of determination there of like well i want to do this and the only way to the only way to have the power is to have the money and now I have the money and I'm going to use that money to have the power because I just want to make I just want to make the movies I want to make. Like it's such a simple goal in a way, but just all of the hoops to jump through to get there. And the fact that you can watch this interview and see this young guy who is already, you know, thinking about that of like how is he going to get there? How is he going to make this Happen and ultimately making it happen for himself, and in the process making movies easier for everybody. Because there's a couple points in this this third part here where he's talking about one how he's learning from Francis around this time to make what he calls story Francis movies. Francis was in the, the kind
1: of film that was exactly the opposite. I mean, I learned a lot from Francis, his type of you know theatrical, stage oriented, you know drama oriented filmmaking. You, you like that. Uh, I'm moving toward it. I'm learning. I'm growing. I'm trying to, you know, see what it's all about. It, um, uh, you know, I'm trying to play and moving, moving around. I'm growing, I hope.
3: And yeah, you think around this, you know, during this summer was, he was with the hikes working on the script for American Graffiti. And he also had in the back of his mind, this kind of space movie he wanted to do. And then later in the conversation, they get in the topic, him and Youngblood, of, is film an art or a business? Which is a very real kind of conversation of what's
1: the line? The problem is that making film is an art. Selling film is a business. The trouble is that they don't know how to sell films. Uh As a result, they try to make you make films that people will go to without them having to be sold, Uh which is the real key to the problem. And if they weren't so backward and, you know, I mean, they just, if 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 they can't put a film in a theater, and have people rush to the door, they're uninterested. It's, I guess, what most kids face when they see the government. I mean, it's the uh, same thing as the government. I just face it with Warner Brothers. It's, um, there are certain freedoms that people expect, yeah. you know, and certain respect that people, ex- you know, to ideas, the respect of the idea. Coming out of school, I And mean, when you respect the idea more than when you realize it in the real world, they don't even know what an idea is, right. and they just walk all over it. Well, and, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing that really makes you angry. Well, it's,
3: it's an interesting conversation with everything yeah. we've been talking about and especially applied, I would say, to Star Wars because, like, it's the same thing that people say, oh, Star Wars is just this, it's an IP or it's a franchise or it's, you know, it's, which, yeah, it is, but it's also Star Wars is art. There is an art to it. Uh, you know, I would challenge anyone to to look a little deeper and think anything different, you know, aside from what you just see on the surface. And I think what they kind of reach in this conversation between Youngblood and Lucas that, you know, like all things in Star Wars, it's a balance. The reason Star Wars still lasts today is because it isn't just a blockbuster. It isn't just this thing that just sells tickets. There is an art to it. Otherwise, why would anyone still care? There's plenty of movies that are popular when they first come out. And then two years later, nobody came to remember what they are. Well, and what? Ultimately, Lucasfilm and ILM are businesses he creates, but they're businesses that create art. And, you know, that becomes a bigger part of his ultimate career than maybe making being a director. Ultimately, he is running a company that is that balance of it's a business that makes art and it has to do things like sell toys and other things to fund the art. And something like ILM, they are making money by making the best art that they can. And, you know, is that any more or less noble than any other art? I went to art school. I got a degree. And I would tell you from my professional opinion, (laughs) that the Battle of the Mutara Nebula and Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan is fine art with a capital F and a capital A. Well, and that's a good point now, you know, all these years later, in his what seventies, what is Lucas trying to do? He's trying to build a museum to basically remind everyone that just because it makes money doesn't mean it's not art. He's trying to make a museum devoted to commercial art money art. <laughs> it all goes back yeah seventy one
1: The thing that carries throughout the film is the kind of human factor, the fact that everything isn't the way it should be because human beings don't make things the way they should be. They make them the way they want them to be. And that's the big thing in the film where there's so much kind of askew things you know people design futuristic societies and they're perfect
2: Uh but society isn't perfect so the jet car chase was was a kind of to be paradoxical
1: yeah it was also as a matter of i wanted to get a very large car i wanted it it has to do with man machine Uh the film relies basically on Uh, and
3: one more thing we can't forget to mention in the part three is you know more talk about the the sound collages in the uh thx movie or Thex, I think they keep, Lucas calls it Thex every once in a while. Just crazy. Shmi, shmi. <laughs> Naboo, Naboo. Yeah, yeah. But he talks about, you know, THX being designed uh, or the, the, the sound collage being designed as an opera and almost like a musical and the music is these kind of sound collage, these sound effects. That's pretty much what Star Wars is. In the end, American Graffiti was the same idea of it was a musical and the sound effects were the pop songs that were being played, but being mixed in the movie to sound like they were coming from the environment. So it was, yeah, kind of still carrying over this sound collage opera film just happy
1: stories. I take it you shot those sequences silent and then somebody composed these right. sounds. Uh, Walter Murch, who also worked on the script with me and uh, who went to school with me, we worked together. He's a real sound man. Uh, 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 and uh, he uh, uh, he did most of the sound work and the montages, what have you, and uh, the one problem is that that's one of the things that Warner Brothers altered considerably. It was much more abstract and much more musical. The film was designed as a kind of opera, you know, a kind of musical science fiction film uh-huh. uh, and the, the soundtrack was co- composed under, you know, pure uh-huh. musical concepts and uh, they didn't quite understand that. They thought uh-huh. it had to all tell a story. And so, what well, essentially the biggest change is they've injected more story, what they thought was a story. That's the story of they took out all the humor and the happiness and people laughing and stuff. because So then we kind of move into know,
3: part four. By this time in history, part four, four is about kind about the of the interesting history. because part four is the one where Youngblood kind of takes over, like we were saying. As fascinating as he is, still part of us watching it, you're kind of like, oh, I just want to keep hearing George Lucas talk, but... <laughs> But the, in the beginning, it starts out right away where they're talking about the car chase in THX 138, and in typical George Lucas style, he just like, "I love cars and I love chases."
2: Well, I, I guess you finally got to indulge your um, love of automobiles
3: with the chase sequence, huh? Yeah,
1: yeah. That that was one of the things behind it. I always loved it. Vicarious I loved, participation. Right. Well, I love huh? cars and I love chases. And-,
3: and yeah, if you look at. Starting with his uh, student film THX, through the real THX, through American Graffiti, it's three movies that are either cars or chases, or both. Well, you think you know? You think of the X Wings as kind of space hot rods. The Assault on the Death Star is just kind of like a big, cool hot rod car chase, kind of in a way, you know. Or the Millennium Falcon as a giant cool car constantly being chased. Yeah, it never it never goes away. <laughs> if Something else it never goes away. Then they start talking about the man machine relationship. Therefore, in THX one one three eight between Thex as they call him THX and the car.
1: You know, as also as was that man machine thing of the fact that uh-huh. man, uh, you know, his relationship, I mean, the machine and his dependence on it, and yeah. his, you know. Lack of control of it. Well, that We, we just
3: did a couple good. episodes you ago. You know, Again, it keeps coming share. up, the Return of the Jedi episode. And what was one of the main themes of Star Wars that was really hammered home in Return of the Jedi? The man-machine relationship. And it's just wild in 1971 to hear George Lucas talking about his interest in that man-machine relationship. Six years before Star Wars even hits theaters or over a decade before Return of the Jedi is out. Yeah, then at this point, as unfortunate as it is that we don't get as much George Lucas, the stuff Youngblood is talking about is pretty interesting. And especially now, you know, watching this from the future, a lot of what he's talking about has happened. And it didn't all go exactly how he had hoped, but it's pretty close. And, you know, he's talking about the uh, the impending release of cable television and films being on video cassettes i don't know if that's a young blood thing or how they how they call them in la i don't know but video cassettes
2: the very nature of filmmaking as it has existed for almost like 40 years uh, or more 40 50 years with the exceptions of the beginning of film, has been this highly centralized thing in which it costs so much money to make a movie that you had to address the broadest, lowest common denominator type of an audience to get the most people to pay the most dollars to go into the theater and see this film, and therefore it developed what I what I call a perceptual imperialism. That is to say that you have to develop certain genres, certain kinds of languages in film to get your audience to come back over and over again to pay that mm-hmm. three or six bucks to have that same kind of experience that they had the last time that it made them forget about how bad work is at the office, so forth and so on. And it developed in the kind of situation you have today and where no creative work can be done. Well, the evolution of technology and especially of communications technologies uh, and videotape cassettes and cable really means the end of all this. Like in book writing, or Jean Cocteau once said that film will never become an art until the filmmaker is as free as the writer with his pen and piece of paper. That is, until you can push one button and take that image, and then that's it, then you really will never be a film poet.
3: But basically the idea of movie studios not being important anymore and people being able to make a film and put it out on video, the quality of the film is what... Draws people to it, not the fact that a movie studio decides to put it out. But the, and the stuff, you know, going into, which is really interesting now looking back, of the idea of a global audience is ultimately bigger than a national audience. But the global audience doesn't need to be as big in each country. You could have a film that, you know, only a few people in each country like, but you spread that around the whole world, you've now have something that's potentially more successful than something that's ma- has mass appeal just for the, you know, for the U S and, you know, we're kind of living in that world with, you know, things like podcasts or bands putting their music on their websites or on Bandcamp or something like that. You can be a, you know, a small band and maybe there's only a few hundred people in each country that Listen to your band, but if it's around the whole world, you have a pretty good size audience. And Youngblood was a smart guy. It's interesting listening to him talk about this and thinking, yeah, the, the video cassette movement that he's predicting was a shift. But then also he's talking about like the next age of information. And there was no word for it, but you can tell it's it's the germ of an idea of the internet. And you think of YouTube and people being able to upload video content and the the whole idea of video art on a global scale. You know, you can't help to think of the idea that right now if the entertainment industry with everything that happened with the pandemic and everything and is the theater system now changing or is the way we watch movies changing? How is that going to affect the films that are made and what people watch, because you can think like before COVID, we were going into this kind of thing. And you heard people talking about it of this, you know, the only movies that are playing in theaters are these blockbusters, are like Marvel movies or Star Wars movies or these giant ticket munching movies. And the smaller films were getting harder and harder to see. And that could be changing in the future as the medium changes that you won't have
2: to address a
3: mass audience
2: right. you won't have to go through this giant corporate structure and reach millions of people to justify the film that you've made
1: right it's it's the, the real problem now is that stranglehold that the distributors and the exhibitors have right. over yeah. uh, over the filmmaker because they're the that's the only way you can make any money back to recoup your costs of making the production right and as long as they have that stranglehold. They're, you know, we're just going right. to keep, you know, trying right. to get things done and never get them done. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing that really in terms of the mass audience, the problem is that the the people that are selling movies only want movies that they don't have to sell. And I bring that up again. Of course, it's, right. It's, it's their thinking. It's their laziness in terms of selling movies that is the thing that's going to, mm-hmm. you know, make cassettes so so exciting anyway because of the fact that then you're going to have a much better sales program and you'll be able to sell your your your, your wares directly to the people and you won't have to sell as well, much I mean, you uh, don't have to sell
3: it, it's
2: far more revolutionary millions, millions. it's far more revolutionary than that For example, and he's
3: right too and he's, he's coming right off THX-138 which again like we said there's no stories of people going to see THX-138 in the movie theater because I don't know if people did and You go back and watch THX now, and it's weird and it's bizarre, but it's probably not as bizarre as it was then. Because you could see someone, a young filmmaker, coming out with a bizarre experimental science fiction-y kind of film based more on feeling now than perhaps in 1971. And a movie like THX would find an audience now more so than it would have in 1971. Well, probably my favorite Lucas quote in this whole interview is around here too where he talks about how with the current system in 71, how most of the really interesting oddballs in this world have been filtered out.
1: The, the thing is that most of the really interesting oddballs in this world have been filtered out <laughs> right. of most of most media. So yeah. you don't really get the really interesting things. I mean, all, all the all the offshoots and all the really crazy things are, you know, all the Van Goghs of the world are sent off into a corner someplace. If I had
3: anything... At this point now with YouTube, I mean, that's kind of gone. The idea, I mean, we are at the point, which was, you know, science fiction to them in 71, where anyone can take the phone that's in their pocket and make a complete film with it and upload it to YouTube and anyone in the world can watch it. Like, we've kind of arrived at this their ultimate dream and whether or not it's always a good thing or or not is is up to debate but the technology has reached the point where anyone can be a filmmaker and anyone can make a movie and anyone can do it for it's not free but everyone has a phone anyway so it ultimately is almost for free well and this even in the hollywood system this is a year before The Godfather, and this is before Star Wars, and this is before Jaws, and this is before the oddballs took over Hollywood, and Scorsese, and Spielberg, and Lucas, and Coppola. Yeah, in in 71, the oddballs were filtered out of the system, but the oddballs took over, and now the oddballs are everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Now we're up to our eyeballs and oddballs. (laughs) Yeah, so much of this conversation is just so... Yeah, there's no other word to say, but it's just, it's just fascinating to go back to and and where these both of their kind of heads were in '71, and kind of where we ultimately are now in 2021 is, in addition to anything else in their careers, these two guys kind of had a good handle on the future. So overall, looking at this whole conversation, Gabe, who was George Lucas at 27 years old, how does it inform? that space movie he made just five, six years later. I think it's one of those things where you realize how I think focused as much as it might seem like, you know, it's just feelings. He's, he's going with his gut, but there is a definite focus to where George Lucas, the filmmaker wanted to be. And he, in his mind saw his future and potentially the future of the, Industry and he did whatever he needed to do to get there and ultimately got there. Like, it's not like going back watching this, you're like, I don't know how this guy ever became successful, or you know, how how did he even ever make Star Wars? Like, you can see where that all came from, even in this brief conversation. And one thing that you know, with just them talking, I think during the credits, that's interesting too, is they start talking about how. Zoetrope's going to be making educational films because you know it's a good business for them but you hear Lucas saying how you know education he's excited about it and how teaching is the key and it's you know another thing now all these years later just so much of his outside of filmmaking work has been with education and you know having a um, a charity for education and the Star Wars film strip you know for schools like a lot of that is it, that person was there and yeah he's kind of the same guy now all these years later
2: uh in zotrope you're going to start uh, producing uh, a lot of educational and uh, uh, industrial type films right. aren't you We're moving and, into
1: that market yeah, it's a valuable market there's there's enough money in it to make a strong financial background and then we're doing something worthwhile you know it's like uh teaching is Uh have you been talking to any of the cassette
3: people i couldn't help thinking to luke lucas that luke skywalker being the alter ego for luke and if you think of the evil empire as you know the hollywood system which there's lucas hates the hollywood system like luke hated the empire (laughs) And Luke kind of stumbles into the Rebel Alliance and Luke ends up being the one that brings down the ancient Sith Lord and has everybody singing and dancing on Endor because of love. And Luke was determined to bring this all down in the way, the very particular way that he wanted to do things. And I don't know, you just can't help making that connection of, so did George Lucas. (laughs) He... He brought it down. He changed the system, and this conversation with Gene Youngblood is like a New Hope era George Lucas. This is this is Luke still on the farm. It's this is uh, him talking to Cammy and Fixer. He's got the floppy hat on, and uh, you know it all. It's not in the movie, but it leads to where the movie leads. Maybe Gene Youngblood is like Biggs. <laughs> Biggs was a little older than Luke, a little bit more experienced. You know, and this conversation, too, and them sitting in the Hollywood Hills, sitting in the flowers, it kind of looks a lot like the conversation between Anakin and Padme in Attack of the Clones. Yeah, it kind of is. Talking about politics, it's it's all there. I just, it's just at any moment, Gene Youngblood's going to start talking about Palo and his dreamy eyes. <laughs> I, you know, and I wouldn't be surprised. Well, and, you know, after they fade out at the end is when he jumped on the, the shack and— uh <laughs> <laughs> Fell off and played dead The uncut footage Maybe he'll be playing at the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art
2: Alright I was 12 His name was Paulo We were both in the legislative youth program He was a few years older than I
1: Very cute Dark curly hair Dreamy eyes. Alright, I get the picture I want-
0: Right now, 20th Century Fox and George Lucas, the man who brought you American graffiti, now bring you an adventure unlike anything on your planet Star Wars. Here they come. <laughs> A billion years in the making, and it's coming to your galaxy this summer. And these last points, too accurate for sand people... Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise.
3: All right, folks, guess what? Apple Podcast Reviews. You know them, you love them, we love them. And it helps the show. It helps more people find the show when they look up Star Wars podcasts on the internet. Blast Points might come up if you leave an Apple Podcast review. And aside from all that, we really love reading them. Brings warm feelings to our hearts. Makes us feel good. So if you listen to this on something Apple, go over there, write a little something nice after this is done. We'd love it. And make sure you check out our website, BlastPointsPodcast.com home of the handy dandy search feature if you are looking for a back episode or something in particular and make sure you're following us on twitter and instagram and facebook and if you're on facebook make sure you are in the super chill group if you want to support the show different way we've got the blast points army on patreon bad batch review episodes Season one is done. Last weekend, we just had our review episode for the final episode of season one, Camino Loss, one episode, and last week we had the uncut Steve Bryant from QVC episode. So lots of fun stuff happening over there on the Blast Points Patreon. Good stuff going on there, and we might be getting back to the beginning soon maybe in some Indiana Jones stuff probably coming up so it's gonna be good it's gonna be good but that about wraps up number 278 here George Lucas maker of films conversation Gene Youngblood it got deep it got heavy watch it absorb it learn it love it learn about story story films I might go as Gene Youngblood cosplay at Celebration Anaheim I'm a big fan of his leather jacket <laughs> Yeah. Look Look for Jason walking around Handing out video cassettes Alright well we'll be back next week With Indie Year It's going to be a hot one folks It's going to be a hot Indie Indie Year episode next week So look forward to that But yeah until then thanks. thank you everybody Bye bye everyone
1: May the force be with you Goodbye old friend May the force be with you
3: Did I say every bun? Oh, good. You can say it again. I don't know, I don't know what I said. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's like, I <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> so, hopefully, some of that makes sense.
0: <laughs> May the force be with all of you.
3: Okay. cast that videotape, cast that distribution.
2: May the force be with all of you.